trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Oh man, I am feeling such a sense of relief today. And a little bit of sadness, but uh, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and dive right in. I, I'm going to put the usual wrong think on the, the back burner for just a moment. And I want to share with you an experience that I've been going through for about the last eight weeks or so. And, and I'm, I'm going to start off by saying the last eight weeks of my life have been um, extremely challenging. Now, I'm not telling you this because I want sympathy. Although, if you want to send a sympathy card, you could. But no, it was, um, first of all, when, when I moved back to southern Idaho, I wanted to get more involved in the community. And so I was, was trying to think, what, what are some of the ways I can do this? And a friend with whom I graduated from high school actually uh, offered an opportunity and said, would you like to sit on the board for, uh, for one of the local uh, theater groups? And because I was involved in theater when I was, you know, a kid and in college, I was like, yeah, actually, I, I think that would be a lot of fun. And so I did. And long story short, eventually I, I became involved in some local community theater. And it's, it's been really, really rewarding. There, there are some immensely talented people that, uh, you know, have every day-to-day lives. They're, they're realtors. They are teachers. They're, you know, they're, there's a lot of kids, you know, involved in this too. But uh, I was persuaded to, uh, to take a very small part in, in a local production of Titanic, the musical. Now, I'd never seen the show, so I didn't know what to expect. But I, I had to insist, look, I don't sing. I don't dance. So, um, you know, a musical is pretty intimidating. If you just give me some speaking lines or narration or something like that, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. And the director assured me, oh, it's just, you know, just a, you just have a few lines. You don't even have to sing them necessarily. You could just kind of, you know, speak, sing them. And I thought, well, okay, I could probably do that. All right. She lied. No, she, she, uh, she actually encouraged me to step out of my comfort zone. And so I, I took on this commitment and, and I didn't realize what a commitment it was going to be. Now, when I say commitment to put on a show like this, you're talking, I think we had roughly eight weeks, four nights a week, four hours, no, three hours a night with, you know, lots of study in between on your own time, learning the songs, learning the lines and, and everything and practicing and practicing. It was a huge, huge commitment. And not just on my part. I think there was uh, 54 members of the, the ensemble in this, this cast. So it was, it was a big big chunk of time and and for me the the really hard part was this was a direct uh, step out of the comfort zone and into some things that I really didn't want to do um yes I had to sing yes I had to to do some dance and 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 it just it was really terrifying I can't remember the last time I have been in in that much discomfort and and when I say discomfort I don't want you to think oh well you know you chose to to be a part of it you know why, why would it be so hard? Here's the hard part. I don't think I'm the only person who feels this way, but it's really tough 
to go out there in front of a group of people, and I mean a pretty large group of people, to do something knowing full well that you are going to suck at what you're doing. And they know it too. It's, it's not like they're just, no, that's great. Yeah, give him a gold star. No, you, they, they'll, t- you know, that, that was pretty bad. Why don't we try this, you know? In other words, you have to be willing to embrace the fact that, yeah, you're not good at this. And that is tough. That is really tough. But, uh, but if you're willing to do it, and especially if you're doing it in an environment where people are actually working and helping to try to, to make you shine and everybody around them shine, it works. And little by little, I was coaxed out of my shell. And just uh, there, there came a point where finally I was over the hump, embracing the discomfort, embracing the fear, and just going, you know what? You got to just do this and, and just have fun with it. And at that point it just became an absolute blast. And so I guess long story short, here's the thing. We, we finally just wrapped up the show uh, last night, five performances, endless, endless rehearsals. And it was actually one of the coolest experiences I've ever been through. Now, again, I want to emphasize, it's also one of the hardest, most challenging experiences that I've been through. How can those two things be true at the same time? Well, I have a couple lessons that I feel like I I picked up here. Number one, nothing great ever happens in the comfort zone. And I love to be comfortable. I I would prefer everything be very comfortable and predictable. And, you know, there's no waves and basically there's, there's no drama to have to solve problems or challenges. I would so much prefer that. But I can honestly say, the, the things that have challenged me and pushed me and stressed me the hardest are the things for which I can look back and, and, and have real gratitude precisely because they made me stretch and, and, and have to become something more than I was starting out. You know, those of you who've served in the military, I'm sure you heard the term embrace the suck, you know, as you're going through your, your training. It is going to suck for a while. It's going to be hard. But on the other side of it, there, there comes this, this legitimate sense of, wow, I, I learned something about myself, learned something about other people. And actually, here's the second lesson. And to me, this is the important one because I, I'm still processing this on a lot of levels. It was, uh, this was such a positive experience. It's actually going to take me some time. Like It could take days, maybe weeks, to really assimilate and understand everything that I have been learning for the last eight weeks. But one lesson that's come through loud and clear is the power of community. Now, I'm not going to just relate this to, well, of course, you know, in a community theater production, why, of course, it's going re- to take community. But let me explain what I'm talking about here because I, I really believe that uh, this could apply to virtually any situation in which you're facing challenges. What I saw happen was I saw a bunch of people come together from very different backgrounds. I mean, we, the cast members were in, literally from two years old to 72 years old. Some were very accomplished performers, singers, dancers, actors, and actresses. And many of us were not. I would count myself as, as one of the least experienced people who was, was in that group. But everybody came together voluntarily nobody was getting paid that's to me that's the amazing thing we did this on our own dime 
we came together with a common goal of we would really like to put on a good show for the community, tell the story of Titanic, you know, through through this musical, which, by the way, it's a really remarkable show. The, the, the music, the songs and everything are just incredible, and they'll stick with you. And it's the fact that it's about a real historical event, I don't know, you just, you, you really, you come away with a sense that... Uh, Something cool has taken place because you're you're acknowledging not only uh, a really remarkable event, but uh, you're you're in a sense almost honoring the the people who went through that event, even though they've been gone for you know over 110 years. But I was amazed at how we came together as a community. We, look, they, I don't know anybody's political affiliations, I don't know anybody's, you know, ideology. None of that mattered. That's my point. When we were focusing on trying to create something good, just to, we had a common goal, and we were willing to to put our efforts towards that voluntarily, and this is the key, not so much to make ourselves stand out, oh, look at me, oh, there were, there were no divas, there, there were no prima donnas in this. It was all about, what can I do? to help the person around, the people around me shine. And I saw this over and over and over again. And, and I'm not exaggerating when I tell you this. For many of us uh, who, who had never met before, I mean, we start out as strangers. We get to know everybody a little bit over that time. But it's, it's kind of like, a, it's, it's like a, a friendship that's forged in fire. You know, you, you're under pressure, you're under stress, and, and uh, it, it's, it's a very real challenge but uh, i've never seen so many heartfelt expressions of appreciation and love and friendship for people who were complete strangers eight weeks ago now i i know there's a larger lesson there and i hope it doesn't sound like i'm getting too uh, philosophical but people coming together voluntarily with the idea that it's it's not about me, it's about what can I do to help others? What can I do to 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 contribute in some way while being selfless about it? Wow, the results were incredible. And again, politics, ideology, you know, your economic status, none of that mattered. I guess it's something to remember when when you notice that people are trying to pit us against each other at almost every turn. We don't have to live like that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thank you for letting me get that uh, that little uh, recounting of the last eight weeks off of my chest. I I'm still just just absolutely stunned at uh, at how much I feel like I, I've learned and am learning, and uh, even moving forward. You know, I've I've got uh, I've got got some processing still going on here. But there are some other things I want to share with you. First of all, let me take a moment and just recognize the sponsors of my show. Yes, they're included in my show notes. You'll find links to MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, and also TMCP, that's the, the Modern Conservative Podcast, Nation.com. That's my friend John Harvey. He is the host of the Modern Conservative Podcast. His, his, um, his clothing 
line that he sells. It's it's t-shirts and and so forth. Really remarkable stuff. I'm just going to say that some people like to wear it on their sleeve, so to speak. If you're one of those people, you really should check out tmcpnation.com. All right. Let's talk about precious metals. I watched the the monetary policy with with great interest, and I've sounded the warning, and I will continue to do so, on central bank digital currencies, which I don't think are a very good idea. I think they put far too much power and control in all the wrong hands. But I've long been a fan of of precious metals. Uh, They're cool. I mean, look, the heft of a gold piece, even the weight of silver or the ring of a silver piece when when it drops onto the table, you just know there's something different about this metal. It's, it's just not the thunk of, you know, a zinc-coated slug or whatever, or a, a copper-coated zinc slug when, when, when you're dropping a penny on the table. It's, there's something to it. You, you can feel that is real money. And that's something that very few people stop to think about. Most of our money exists in the form of electrons. You know, swipe your card, tap your card, whatever, and away you go. Paul Rosenberg has a really fascinating take on what he calls the missing gold economy. And here's what he's talking about. He says, while most people missed it, there was a thriving gold economy in the early 2000s. And it was centered around e-gold, which is a system for trading digital gold. And it involved billions of dollars per year in transactions. It was also a magnificent adventure. So he goes... In just a moment, I'm going to quote a passage from the foreword to Carl Mullen's book on e-gold called Better Money. At Carl's gracious request, he says, I wrote that foreword. But before I do, he says, I want everyone interested in silver and gold to know that their metals could be the doorway to excitement and prosperity right away, not just someday. In other words, it was done then and it could be easily done again. So here's the passage. Paul wrote, I am one of the lucky few who stumbled upon e-gold in the late 1990s as it was bursting upon the world, empowering small commerce, allowing person-to-person international transactions, and creating, for lack of a better description, a planet-wide party for the motivated but unprivileged. He says this e-gold economy led me to, led me rather to bands of brothers, talented, fascinating, and often wise bands of brothers secretly meeting on tiny Croatian islands, in the back rooms of bars, in glitzy hotels, and in dark corners of the internet. He says e-gold led me to raw, potent, and invigorating business deals and dealers. It brought me into a wide variety of international experiences, both for better and worse, that I wouldn't have imagined otherwise. The e-gold era was, to him, the life of high adventure, and he says, I loved nearly every minute of it. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, look, I, I am, of course, a thoroughly committed Bitcoin advocate. He says, I want it to be used everywhere and all the time, starting yesterday, but that doesn't mean I dislike gold and silver or that I want them to do badly. In fact, he says, on the contrary, silver and gold are decentralized money, which I love. My only complaint is that most of their advocates never actually use them. And this is where he really grabbed my attention. He says, let's be honest and admit that a huge percentage of gold and silver advocates are frozen in place, waiting for an apocalypse of one sort or another. That's when they plan on using their metals and not before. And he says, waiting for an apocalypse, while it can be wonderfully dramatic, is a horrible strategy in the here and now. You wait and wait and wait and eventually die waiting for the apocalypse to come, which it never does. 
Besides, he says, in a real apocalypse, depending on which version you favor, gold will be some of the last money that would be used. We'd all use barter or Bitcoin or even outmoded forms of cash before purchasing a bag of groceries with a one-ounce gold coin. So the fact is that gold and silver can be exciting. All you have to do is use them. But he says, as far as I know, this is quite legal. You can check with whatever professionals you prefer. But he says, please understand this. And it is it's that gold and silver remain neutered until you use them in daily commerce. Now, the excitement and price increases come when we start using our metals at the corner store or to buy a used car and so on. He says, for one thing, everyday use would almost instantly generate a commercial infrastructure. Local exchangers, assayers, and other businesses would spring into existence to service it all. The exchange of millions of ounces on a daily basis requires support, and it would spell opportunity for anyone motivated and reliable. So, how does he know that this uh, support system would spring into existence? Because that's exactly what happened with e-gold just two decades ago. Self-appointed and self-motivated dealers jumped up and began exchanging e-gold for anyone who could pay. They developed their own pricing mechanisms and all that went along with it. It was unfettered commerce, profitable commerce, and he says, I'm telling you, it was a gas. Now he talks here about the secret appeal of the apocalypse and says, please understand, I'm not trying to condemn anyone by saying this. I like gold and silver advocates. In fact, he says, in my experience, They are earnest, thoughtful, and reliable people. They're the kind of people I'm pleased to have as friends and neighbors. Nonetheless, I think this needs to be pointed out. One of the great appeals of an apocalypse is that it takes you directly to clarity and freedom without having to take any risks along the way. So here he puts it in a slightly different form. He says, using a Sermon on the Mount metaphor that I think is quite fitting, buying into the apocalypse drama gets you the kingdom of heaven without having to suffer for righteousness' sake. That makes sense? Paul Rosenberg says progress requires difficult decisions. It requires acting in the face of established authority and expectations, but it's deeply satisfying and rewarding when it works. People shouldn't go through life without this. And he says if you're a silver and gold advocate, it's sitting right at your feet. Now, I have this conversation regularly, or at least I, I have messaging back and forth with, with various friends about what do we do monetarily to avoid the clutches of a digital currency system that would, in effect, uh, enslave us? And I don't think I'm being overly dramatic in, in saying this. When the powers that be control, literally control, every dollar or whatever denomination it is that you earn, that you spend, it's not really yours. Basically, you are at their mercy. And, and again, I, I point to what happened to the Canadian truckers just about a year ago. Even the people who went to send them donations and support them. What did we see happen? Their bank accounts frozen. Money confiscated. They were turned off, basically. You're an unperson. You can't do anything. That's the danger of digital money. It, it, it allows for turnkey tyranny. Money, on the other hand, that you control, that that is not subject to the control of the powers that be or the various systems that they have seized control of, that gives you options. And while I'm a a huge fan of of precious metals, 
I think Paul Rosenberg has a point here. Figuring out how to use these in day-to-day transactions, that's going to be the key. But we're all waiting, right? At least that's where I feel like I am. I'm just waiting. Will somebody come along and invent the system then that's going to do it? What Paul's telling us to do is, how about you guys step up and start figuring it out yourselves? It's not like we can't figure this out. We've got the motivation. We've got the means. Oh, but do we have permission? Well, I would think if you're a free individual, you're not exactly going to wait around for permission to exercise that freedom, right? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Man, my voice is just hammered today. That's what happens when you use your voice too much. (laughs) Actually, uh... I have uh, I've been overusing it a little bit, but I think for all the right reasons. But I still have some great stuff I want to share with you. And by the way, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, it's a really simple matter. Go to thebrianhydeshow.com and you'll see show notes listed there. Click on any one of them down at the bottom of the page. You'll see a big subscribe button. It's going to ask for your email and that's it. If you will share your email with me, I will send you show notes each day that I do the show. I'm not going to spam you. I'm not going to have super special offers and, you know, uh, be, be hitting you up all the time. I just, uh, I want to share with you the best information that I can find. And if you don't have time to listen to the program, here's a great way to at least kind of, you know, find some reading material that'll shed some light on things that uh, may be of interest. And if they're not, I'm not going to be offended. But it's a resource that uh, you might want to access if you want to see how things are going, or at least uh, consider a different vantage point of how things are going. All right, that said, it's still a little bit shocking to just think about how divisive the issue of mandatory face masks became over the last three years. I mean, we were kind of getting into the the thick of things um, about three years ago. This is when when the, the real questioning and fear was starting to spread. Oh, what's happening in China? What's What's going on? What's going on? And then, uh, what was it, about March 15th, about a week from now, is when, when things really started to get weird. But the face masks were one of those pivot points where we really saw um, some, some ugliness come about. In fact, it, not just the face mask, but the issue of mandatory face masks. John Miltimore, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, talks about the true lesson of mask mandates and how it goes far beyond the fact that they didn't work. He says, we learned about means and ends. Writing in the New York Times on Tuesday, he says, columnist Brett Stevens highlighted new research from Oxford University epidemiologists. I'm sorry, an Oxford University epidemiologist who found that masks and mask mandates did nothing to slow the spread of COVID-19 or protect people from the virus. Here's what the article said. The most rigorous and comprehensive analysis of scientific studies conducted on the efficacy of masks for reducing the spread of respiratory illnesses, including COVID-19, was published late last month. Its conclusions, said Tom Jefferson, the Oxford epidemiologist who is its lead author, were unambiguous. There is just no evidence that they, meaning masks, make any difference, he told journalist Marianne Damasi 
Full stop. But wait, hold on. What about N95 masks as opposed to lower quality surgical or cloth masks? Makes no difference. None of it, said Jefferson. Well, what about the studies that initially persuaded policymakers to impose mask mandates? They were convinced by non-randomized studies, flawed observational studies. End quote. Now, John Miltimore says that op-ed has garnered a great deal of attention, especially from opponents of mask mandates who for years have argued masking did not offer the protection against the virus that mask proponents claimed. Now, he says, I must point out, however, this isn't the first time the gray lady has taken aim at masking or mask mandates. In June of 2022, he says, I highlighted an article written by Pulitzer Prize winning writer David Leonhardt that explored the ineffectiveness of mask mandates. Here's a quote from that article. In U.S. cities where mask use has been more common, COVID has spread at a similar rate as in mask-resistant cities. Mask mandates in schools also seem to have done little to reduce the spread. Hong Kong, despite almost universal mask wearing, recently endured one of the world's most, or worst rather, COVID outbreaks. Advocates of mandates sometimes argue that they do have a big effect, even if it's not evident in wide population, in population-wide data, rather, because of how many other factors are at play, but this argument seems unpersuasive, end quote. Now, John Miltimore says, look, not to toot my own horn, but I was writing against mask mandates when it was still considered verboten to do so. I was called anti-science for pointing out uncomfortable truths. Some readers even said they hoped my children would die of COVID for writing such a thing. In reality, it was the mask mandate proponents who were anti-science. How did they make such a mistake? Well, some might argue they simply relied on bad studies, but that, of course, is part of the problem. But the truth is they made two mistakes that were even bigger. The first was ignoring that masking came with serious trade-offs, something some scientists learned the hard way. The second mistake was to focus on ends instead of means. John says, as I pointed out last summer, libertarians are fond of a popular adage, good ideas don't require force. And libertarians don't just use this line because we have an aversion to coercion. We use it because we are aware that force often produces dismal results. He says, we often forget this, and I don't just mean humans. A lot of libertarians forgot this lesson during the pandemic. Many notable libertarian leaders and institutions, he says, I'll refrain from naming them, were notably silent about lockdowns and other non-pharmaceutical interventions in 2020, although some of them found their voices in 2021 and 2022. Now, whether this was out of cowardice or the belief that these mitigations would actually work, we'll never know. Either way, he says they would do well to read fee founder Leonard Reed, who in his 1969 essay, The Bloom Pre-Exists in the Seed, argued that one could reasonably predict the ends of an action by the means employed. Here's how Reed put it. Examine the actions or means that are implicit in achieving the goals. Implicit in the collectivist approach is the masterminding of the people. The control of the individual's life is from without. But for an individualist, what is valued above all else is is each distinctive individual human being. Any conscientious collectivist, if he could, properly evaluate the authoritarian means his system of thought demands would likely defect. However lofty the goals, if the means be depraved, the result must reflect that depravity. End quote. Now, in the New York Times article, Stevens asks, will any lessons be learned? And John Miltimore says, well, that's an important question, but the real lesson from the pandemic isn't that masking doesn't work. 
is that we need to focus on the means we use, not the ends we seek. I love it. John is one of my favorite writers, and he really has been the voice of reason in so many ways on writing on COVID issues. There's nothing fanatical or... um, I'm trying to think of a diplomatic way to say this. I don't want to alienate, you know, other other writers who've been very uh, passionate and and uh, have stuck their necks out and, and largely been right. But I love John's approach. I think John has had a much more uh, dispassionate approach, and and I think a real willingness to try to see all sides on this. But he's also been absolutely right when he said, "Look, it doesn't work, and these are the reasons why." But rather than getting all wrapped up in, well, uh, it's all about the mask. It's all about, you know, masking doesn't work. I love that he's calling out the underlying principle that's at stake here. Forcing people to do things against their will is always going to bring negative consequences. And what's crazy to me is how many people out there who consider themselves, yes, I'm a staunch advocate for freedom. But they're also a staunch advocate for forcing people to do the right thing. In their mind. Now, see, I'm facing a little bit of a conundrum in this uh, myself right now, in that um, right now in my home state of Idaho, we are seeing um, we're seeing laws come forward that would ban, uh, for instance, drag queen performances in front of children, or that would ban very sexually explicit sex education material for children in public libraries and school libraries at least ban making the, making them available to kids in those settings. And part of this is just that aversion of, well, you know, there ought to be a law, always invites a man with a gun to sit down at the table every single time. So I don't want to get government involved if I don't have to. This is why when, when we look at the means, well, are we trying to force people to do the right thing? I don't think that this is forcing people to do the right thing and, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just trying to justify. I, I have to allow this possibility. But I think we've actually reached the point where drawing that protective boundary around our kids is, is requiring legal force to back it up. And it's primarily, you know, it's not about, well, we want to throw these people in prison, you know, if they do this. It's more a matter of, um, I believe in, in the instances of the bills that I've seen that would ban, you know, explicit, sexually explicit performances um, in front of kids in public and the making available of, of uh, obscene materials to them in libraries. You're talking about a $10,000 fine. So it's, it's more of a financial thing. But, you know, there's also the implicit threat. If you don't pay the fine, guys with badges and guns are going to show up and take you to jail. So, yes, there, there is force that would be behind that. But I also would ask, you know, in the interest of fairness, is this just a matter of a bunch of, you know, busybody parents getting together? And, well, you know, well, we ought to do, we ought to find some way to boss somebody around or otherwise, you know, threaten them. No. This is the actions of people who are seeing some pretty serious, uh, questionable material being uh, portrayed to children and introduced to children. And they're drawing a line and saying, you know what? That should not be acceptable. In fact, people should be held accountable for engaging in that kind of behavior. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. All right. I'm going to see if I can just make it through one more segment here. Uh, my voice is just ragged today. Who knows? You might get a little bit of a break from me, but I'll still be publishing those show notes whether I can speak or not. Came across a great article a little bit earlier today. Um, I know that we've all dealt with a, a fair amount of indignity in the recent past, and not just COVID-related. I, I, I would count to passing through the TSA checkpoint at the airport. There's a certain amount of indignity that comes along with that as well. I mean, the, the prospect of, uh, we need to peep under your clothes or we need to touch your pee-pee. That's, that's, there's an indignity there. I'm sorry. There's just no other way around it. But got this great article from Richard Kelly. He's writing from Australia. Dignity is yours to lose. Something about this just reached out and, and grabbed me. And maybe it's because he starts with, with kind of a touching story. He says, on my morning walk with the dog, I passed through a family gathering. He says, the path I was on goes right along the foreshore between a car park and the sand. From about 10 meters away, I could see a father and mother, two teenage or early 20s kids, and an old infirm dog being gently cradled by the dad, carried a few meters from the car across the path and being laid down on a little bit of grass growing on the sand dunes. Was this a favorite spot of the dog? The sun was shining, the family was in the lee of the cliff, sheltered from the wind, the sea was calm. He says, by the time I realized what was going on, it was too late to reverse course or avoid walking between them. He says, I hurried on with my own pup, his energy and cheekiness on the end of the lead, a stark contrast with the slow, pained movements of the old dog that was blinking into the sun and raising his muzzle to the ocean smells. Perhaps not today, but soon, that old dog will have one last journey in the car. Now, he says, those moments of peace, togetherness, and dignity were precious. I was very moved and sat down on a bench about 100 meters away to offer a prayer for the family and the dog. Now, Richard Kelly says, dignity is a concept that doesn't seem to cut any ice with our overlords. Even if they worked, and especially if they didn't, masks were an affront to dignity. Denial of the comforting embrace or kiss of a loved one made dying with dignity that much harder. The invasion of snarling, smug, hunching, hectoring tyrants into our living rooms each night made dignified contact, conduct rather a test of willpower and patience. He says the extraordinary turmoil of the last three years on the surface is ebbing away. But the undercurrents are as strong as ever, dragging us further away from the dignity that used to be inherent in our daily lives our encounters with others, our institutions, our nations. The algorithmic censorship and self-censorship we commit in our guarded conversations with friends and colleagues attack the dignity of relationships in general and friendships in particular. There are some things we cannot say, will not say, are frightened to say, especially if someone beloved might hear or read them. Ironically, some self-censorship would have been nice from those who thought it was appropriate to hector, bully, and guilt trip those who were not to be coerced into injecting an experimental concoction on pain of exclusion from society. He says the evasiveness and weasel wording of our institutional representatives continues apace, vowing before an election not to make changes to tax on superannuation, then months later reversing course. But he says it was ever thus. It's unreasonable to expect that this feature of our democracy would be at the vanguard of a revival in trust. The politicians have sacrificed their own dignity on the altar of power. 
Likewise, the so-called health experts proclaiming their infallibility and imposing strictures at odds with human dignity and human life. Now, remember, he's talking about uh, Australia, New Zealand here. Statewise, he says, uh, Victoria seems likely to pass legislation that will share personal health data compulsorily with no opt-out. That long-held tenet that medical information was the most sacrosanct private data of all is being swept away before our eyes. At the national level in Australia and across the world, the proposed changes to the World Health Organization Treaty will see whole nations prostrate themselves to a global scheme, abdicating responsibility and making the idea of national sovereignty and thus national dignity completely obsolete. Even more insidious, inroads are being driven into our cultural understanding of what it means to be an individual with agency and responsibility and autonomy. In fact, here's an extract of the product disclosure statement that came with his latest House and Contents Insurance Renewal Bill. On page 28, under the heading, Things We Don't Cover, delete the exclusion communicable disease and replace with communicable disease. Any loss claim any loss, damage, claim, cost, expense, legal liability, or other sum directly or indirectly arising out of or attributable to a communicable disease or the fear or threat, whether actual perceived, of a communicable disease. Communicable disease. Now, that's a lot of word salad there, but what it says is his insurance will not cover any loss arising out of the fear of a communicable disease. And Richard Kelly says, what on earth is this clause saying? What possible circumstance would see the insurer invoke this clause to deny a claim? In any case, fear as such is baked into this contract as an entirely predictable predisposition or attitude for someone to hold. And if a clear, that if a claim rather arises because someone was afraid, well, then that claim is avoidable. Bottom line is our insurers have conceded that fear is an attribute of our culture and they don't want to have to pay for it. Fear and dignity can't coexist. Now, the good news is that no one, not a supermarket insisting on vaccination to hold down a job or not a premier salivating about qualifying for a statue on account of being in power for 3,000 days, not a bully masquerading as a cop walking away scot-free from court can take a person's dignity, no matter how much they might want to. Ultimately, it is a personal possession only to be freely exchanged and only retrieved at great cost. So what then to make of the rest of it? Our democracy, our nation, our culture? Is it time lovingly to pick it up and lay it on a blanket in the sun, like the family at the beach, and stroke its head while we say goodbye through our tears? He says, I'm reminded of Wilfred Owen's poem, Futility. Move him into the sun. Gently touch it. Gently its touch awoke him once. At home, whispering of fields half-sown, always it woke him even in France, until this morning in this snow. If anything might rouse him now, this kind old son will know. Think how it wakes the seeds. Woke once the clays of a cold star. Our limbs, so dear achieved, our sides, full-nerved, still warm, too hard to stir. Was it for this the clay grew tall? Oh, what made fatuous sunbeams toil to break the earth's sleep at all? And Richard Kelly asks, can the old, kind old son wake our democracy, or will we grieving one day find a new puppy and train him in the ways of dignity? There's a lot to unpack there, but I'm including this one in today's show notes. Maybe it's something you'll find time to check out at your own leisure. 
But that one reached out and grabbed me. I thought it was uh, it was worth passing along. So, one final note here, and I hate to sound like the, the Daily Tattler, <laughs> but uh, this was a great article from Rajan Lad on AmericanThinker.com. Chris Rock shows everyone how to deal with personal setbacks. And I, I don't keep super close track of these things, but I was a little surprised to see. It's been almost a year since Will Smith walked up the, to the stage at the 94th Annual Oscar Awards and slapped Chris Rock in the face in response to an innocuous joke that Rock made about Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith. After subjecting Rock to violence, Smith returned to his seat where he began bellowing obscenities in an understandably shaken Rock. Now, it was a disgraceful display by Smith and a much worse display by the luminaries of Hollywood who just can't stop telling others how to lead their lives. The stars remained looking befuddled and unsure how to react. Maybe they feared they'd be called racist if they immediately condemned Smith. Maybe they thought that confronting Smith, who's rich, powerful, and connected, would hurt their careers. I mean, after all, they remained silent over Harvey Weinstein's predatory behavior when he was a powerful presence in Hollywood. But here's the thing that was so cool. How Chris Rock reacted. I mean, apart from being physically assaulted, Smith also had attempted to humiliate him. And you have to admit, he kind of came back, you know, I thought he came back as well as possible when he says, well... He slapped the crap out of me, you know. He he tried to, to make it fun. But here's the thing that is so cool, and the article points out, Rock did not wallow in victimhood. He did not try to to, to make that the identity of, of uh, him from that point forward. Oh, look at me. I'm a victim. I was slapped in public. I was assaulted, and you have, to, you have to like me and everything. He hasn't stopped being funny. And he's to be celebrated, says this article, for showing everybody how to deal with setbacks with grace. He chose to be identified as a comedian rather than profit from victimhood. And there is a powerful lesson in that. Because right now, victimhood is a growth industry. You have people climbing over one another to identify as the most victimized of all. So it may seem like an unlikely example, but there it is. The guy who got his face slapped off in public. He handled it with great aplomb. And yeah, there's a lesson in there for all of us, including don't say anything about Will Smith's wife. This is The Brian Hyde Show.